Hello, welcome. Yes, welcome one and all to episode 54 of The Film File. Hi, welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And there's no more film geekery going on than the person on the other end of this microphone. The Lord of Film Geeks, the man in the savage lands, Mr. Andy Meakin. It's not quite savage. I mean, it's Hackenthor. It's close <laughs> to Savage Lands. Uh, <laughs> or Escape from I, New York, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, it's... Or more Escape from LA. It, it's, not as, <laughs> it's not as ideal as Escape from New York. It's a bit lacklustre around here. Uh, yeah, how's your week been? Um, it's been a week. I've been very busy. Uh, now I've found myself with a, a regular job. Um, that's not to say that I don't normally have regular jobs, but, but something that uh, I have to take very seriously. It, I don't know where the week goes, and suddenly, um, and suddenly we're around to doing the next show. It doesn't seem two minutes since we did the last one. Had some lovely feedback on the show, uh, which has been nice um, from a, a friend who's a, who's a, a now become a listener, and 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 that was good. Didn't agree with everything that we said, but that's fine. That's I mean that that's my that's our ethos completely. Yeah, you don't have to you're never going to agree with everything that we say. We might rave about something that you absolutely despise. You might love something that we rip to shreds. I mean, I'm, I know that I booked the trend with my review of Pieces of a Woman when I said it didn't quite resonate and it didn't touch me emotionally, but loads of people online, it's really impacted on them. Yeah. But it's all about how each film impacts on you. And we love that you're listening to the show, you're loving the show even though you don't agree with us. Um, and I just got a quick, quick uh, call out for your uh, Sunday night. Um, the movie talk on Sunday. Movie talk on Sunday. How was that this week? It was a fu- fun bit of banter all about Westerns this week, which Westerns is something which is close to my heart. I've mentioned them a few times over the run of the show, that I do love a good Western. And it was great to see the, the names of Westerns that really appeal to me. Other people will go in, oh yeah, that one as well. When you come to remakes, I mean, People are very often opposed to remakes. But as we discovered on Movie Talk on Sunday, you know what? Sometimes remakes work. And two Western remakes of the past couple of decades stand up tall. And that's True Grit and 310 to Yuma. Oh, excellent. Well, um, you should join Andy on a Sunday night on Twitter. We'll give you those details later. So you're thinking, what's coming up on today's show? Well, we've got a jam-packed show just for you, including a deep dive into the Blues Brothers, We'll be looking at what's on the streaming networks and reviewing a whole multitude in films, including One Night in Miami and my take on Wonder Woman 84. But before all that, he's the man who's got his finger plugged into the internet. And boy, does that hurt. He's the Johnny Mnemonic of the movie news scene. He is, of course, Andy Meakin with the news. Okay, so let's start off with, uh, well, something that we speculated a couple of episodes ago. Pretty much all the upcoming non-Warner Brothers or Disney releases have now been delayed. No surprises, really. I I can't say that I'm particularly shocked, but disappointed. We said a couple of episodes ago that with the, you know, whilst Warner Brothers and Marvel and uh, Disney have their streaming services as a backup plan, the, the dates are pretty much going to stick. Maybe juggle, and we'll get to that later. But your universals, etc., will be shifting. Well, No Time to Die is delayed once again. Uh, it's now been shifted to October the 8th of this year. 
Sony have moved Cinderella from February to July, Peter Rabbit 2 from April to June, Ghostbusters Afterlife from June to November, the Uncharted movie, which was originally set for this summer, is now coming out in February next year, which that makes me worry because February is generally considered for action films, the dead zone. You drop them in there when you're not sure how it's going to perform. I'm kind of wondering, though, because I, I, I don't know about you. I mean, we were supposed to record a couple of hours earlier today. Time is, is, has become slightly inconsequential. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and I think maybe trends might might even change because I think... There's going to be so much content in your local cinema that you're just going to try harder to get to see because you're thinking, well, there might be another lockdown around the corner or whatever. But I think um, th- there is that possibility that, that certain trends will will now be altered due to the fact that we just um, we just don't know what, what day of the week it is, let alone what month it is. Well, here's hoping. But in addition, Morbius is now shifted to January next year. Uh, which is definitely a dead zone for cinemas because post-Christmas, that first month, is it's basically just your award season films, which don't do huge box office but generate critical interest. But like you say, we don't know what time is these days. I mean, we need, we need a doctor with a TARDIS to come and fix time <laughs> at this point in time. Uh, Universal have moved Nobody. Oh, I was looking forward to Nobody. The Bob Odenkirk film. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Bob Odenkirk doing a John Wick. Uh, that was looking quite good. Well, that's been given a one-month delay, so it's now coming out on Easter weekend. Uh, Bios, the Tom Hanks starring film, has moved from April to August. Edgar Wright's Last Night on so- in Soho, another film that was desperately looking mm. forward to, because you've got to love Edgar Wright. That's moved six months along to October. And A Quiet Place 2 has shifted to The Quiet Place of September the 17th. This year? Yes. Uh, at this point in time, it's this year. <laughs> At least again. It's all this thing, isn't it? We keep doing this. We keep building ourselves on films that we're looking forward to seeing, and then suddenly they're, they're, they're pulled away from, like, like the proverbial rug from underneath us, and we've got to wait on. Yep. Currently, the only major huge, like the, the huge impact block box office releases that are still set for the pre-July release are Black Widow, yep. Fast and Furious 9, Free Guy, Kingsman, which now there's hints that that's moving, Chaos Walking, Cruella, and Venom 2. Right. But I suspect that most of them may see some plans for changing in the coming months, simply because Black Widow, we know that Marvel are very keen to still keep that as a box office release and not go straight to streaming. Well, you know, let's just, just, just dwell on that for a minute. You know, we've talked about this on, on, uh, on many occasions. And I spoke to a friend of mine over the weekend, and we all feel that we need a definitive, good box office style film to bring back audiences. Yes. Because you, let's be honest, Tenet wasn't the uh, wasn't the savior of cinema as, as it was intended to be, and we we've, we've considered that many times that it wasn't particularly the right film. Yeah. But I still believe that the name recognition, like a Marvel film. Is, is what's going to pique people's interest and bring them back. Uh, especially if they're feeling safe, you've had the vaccine, you're ready to go. It's that kind of film that's going to be the draw. Because otherwise, it, the amalgamation of, of the streaming services where certain films, and we'll discuss this later, uh, have landed on streaming, I've yeah. got a feeling that those films wouldn't have done it, wouldn't have been the big ones to, to pull them in. So I think it's going to be a film like Black Widow or name recognition of Godzilla versus King Kong, which is a great segue into saying, did you see the trailer? Oh, oh man, that trailer. Wow. 
I did I see it? I watched it on repeat. <laughs> it did exactly what you wanted it to do. You just saw two great giant monsters beating seven shades out of each other. Yeah, and I didn't know, I didn't realize the film was directed by Adam Wingard. This is a real change for him. For those who are not familiar with Wingard, he usually produces slightly exploitational films. Um, yeah. of varying degrees of some being absolutely fantastic, like Dead Birds, to some which are just interesting. But there's always an interesting element, uh, like uh, You're Next and uh, The Guest. Uh, and, of course, he did the Blair Witch reboot. Yeah. Uh, so this is a, a real change for him. It's a, um, it's, a def- it's a definitely different direction. And I quite like that because I like it when someone steps outside their normal boxes because they can bring something different to a different genre. And a lot of the times it does give something new to offer. I'll totally agree with you because I, you look at uh, Kong Skull Island where yeah. you had uh, an indie director come on to that project and did something absolutely unique with it and, and something really, really fresh and gave it a, not just a monster movie layer, but it gave it another layer with, with the Vietnam uh, analogy that went on. I thought it was a fantastic film. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. The last Godzilla movie, King of the Monsters, slightly disappointing. But two monsters, as you say, hitting yeah. each other tremendously for two hours will keep me invested at this stage. If the film turns out to be as good as the trailer, I'm in. I was amused by some comments online with people saying, oh, so there's no, there's no, like, definition of how big these are because the scenes in that trailer where they're knocking over buildings but at the same time they can both stand on an aircraft carrier they clearly don't have perspective and i was like you clearly don't know how big an aircraft carrier is (laughs) mate (laughs) i mean if even the smallest aircraft carriers basically would cover our estate yeah yeah, absolutely i've seen one there's one in they are airports on water (laughs) yeah there's one in new york harbor which is now a museum and it's huge absolutely huge it's like a like a small city 300 meters in length aren't you yeah Uh, so um yeah i mean it looks great that shot of them both stood on the aircraft carrier that i've mentioned oh that alone had me just going i'm in i don't need to see any more but i'm gonna watch (laughs) this trailer again i'm in this that it's it's gonna be great my only disappointment no cinemas yes yeah because that looks like it needs to be on the cinemas and on that related news uh, whilst it's got the 26th of march release date hbo have now said except in com- in places that we have our hbo max in which case it's coming out a week later the 26th of march is now for the international non-hbo territories for cinema only right and i think that this will be a way to try to combat piracy because they saw it on wonder woman even though wonder woman's done great for hbo they've reported today that they've seen a huge spike in subscriber base literally from them dropping that on the service right so it's worked for them but within three hours of it going on hbo it was available in a perfect copy online for anyone who wanted to pirate it and that's what they want to try to avoid they want to make sure that the international market gets as much yeah. footfall at box offices where they're open china like we said is open australia is open so they'll have a week where it's not going to have a perfect rip online that will put people off going to the cinema and it'll give them a way to see whether Wonder Woman was, would have performed better had it not been released internationally at the same time. Right. It, it's going to be interesting to see with this one. But I'm disappointed that I've got a great TV setup, a great sound setup, but I've not got a cinema screen. And I would love to see this film 
on the big screen. Me too. It's not the same. What else have you got for us, newswise then, Andy? Still sticking with their release dates, and Paramount had offers from Apple and Netflix, according to Wall Street Journal, to pick up Top Gun Maverick. But the studio has turned them down and still wishes to hold off until cinemas are ready. They are very convinced that this is going to bring people back to the cinemas. And to be honest with you, a Top Gun film, yeah, I can kind of see it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Searchlight have tidied up their 2021 slate and have now set up the the Night House to July, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, uh, both in September. Antlers is in October. Del Toro's Nightmare Alley is moved to December. There's no dates yet set, sadly for Waititi's Next Goal Wins, or, and this is the one that is breaking my heart, I need this film in my life, Wes Anderson's French Dispatch. Yeah, I know. We've been so excited about that since we saw the trailer. Wow, it must have been a year ago. I'm starting to wonder with the lack of release dates being set for that, and because it's been postponed, and they keep saying, we're postponing it, we will let you know when it's coming out, and it's they're still not telling us. I've got a suspicion that once they add on this whole Fox content element onto Disney Plus, they will have French Dispatch as a showcase within there. Mm, I, I'm hoping you're wrong, but you know what? I think it's a it's it's good money on a fairly good prediction if if that's where you want to lay your cash. So I'm calling that one now, and you know how good we are at calling these things. Yeah, we seem to be. Um, <laughs> so far, so good. Um, Lord and Miller's animated feature connected. What do we know about it? We all, what we do know about it is that it's Lord and Miller, who we do have a lot of love for, and it's now been sold by Sony to Netflix and had a title change to The Mitchells versus The Machines. The film will follow an everyday family's struggle to relate whilst technology rises up around the world. Sounds a little bit like uh, the Lego movie. It does. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, and that's I'm not a bad thing. I'm getting the feeling you can kind of pigeonhole Lord and Miller's style of animations into one single kind of category. And you know what? Like you say, it's not a bad thing. I'm just expecting a good bit of fun. Netflix have now got it as one of their films to release this year with their commitments to at least one film every week, which they're doing quite good with, to be honest with you. Uh, but apparently they sell, it was sold to them for $110 million. Wow. The only country that Netflix don't have distribution rights in is China. So clearly they're, they're still targeting Chinese cinemas with that release. I've got a bit of news talking of Netflix. Uh, they're continuing, as you're saying, to, to release stuff weekly. So they need content and they've nabbed a couple of big names to start in a movie known as The Formula. Uh, and that's Robert De Niro and John Boyega. Don't know much about the film at this stage other than dramatic pause while I find my notes. It's Shades of Drive, and it's directed by uh, Gerard McMurray, who brought us the first Purge. I can get some enthusiasm for that. The names alone, I mean, I know De Niro can sign up to some rubbish, but he's still someone who you do seek out his work for. Yeah. And Boyega just needs that next big hit. He just needs something to... Yeah, he he took all the being sidelined in the Star Wars franchise in the right step. He said that he didn't go anti-Disney. He didn't like slag everyone off like we've seen another actor do. And I'm not talking <laughs> about him this week. Um, he just took it on the chin, said things need to change, but I'm moving on. And he's moved on. And I want to see what he can do because he's got so much potential, so much promise. He has. Do you want to tell us about Lovecraft Country's Misha Green directing the Tomb Raider sequel? Or have I just given it all away? Well, that's pretty much the news that oh. we know. Uh, the two the two made a sequel for MGM, which will s still star Alicia Vikander 
it's been kind of on the back burner for the past year now the you know, you have to look around the world and say the COVID thing put a lot of things into delayed production. And so everyone who was originally linked to be writing, directing, etc., this sequel, they've got other projects to work on. So now Misha Green has been snagged to write and direct it, which it will be a big screen directorial debut. Well, she did really well on Lovecraft Country. Um, it's, it's a series that I liked a lot. Uh, it's a series that was problematic. Um, in in the narrative of it, but uh, I came away and I enjoyed it more than than the problems took away from it. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I get that. So I found that it it would have a really good episode, a really strong episode, and the next episode would be like, "What am I watching?" And then it would pick up again. And I think it salvaged itself in the last two episodes. It really built up to something that made me go, "You know what? I've not wasted my time on this yeah. series. This has been fun." I this don't know if that fun. was the cause of of the adaptation. If you know what I mean, I don't know if having not read the book, I don't know if it's by staying very close to the book, whether that was the problems it was inherent in, in that narrative. So it was a while you're talking about uh, a Tomb Raider. It's just been announced that there is going to be animated series based on the recent video game uh, reboots uh, for Netflix as well. And these are both anime shows as well, apparently. A, a Kong Skull Island uh, offshoot, which will be set in Legendary's Monsterverse and will focus on a shipwreck crew on an island of monsters and one king to rule them. Uh, the Tomb Raider series, meanwhile, will catch up with the iconic adventurer Lara Croft and will tie in to the recently rebooted game. Fantastic. I do love a good animated spin-off. Yeah, they're brought to you by the people who are doing Castlevania. Have you watched that? Oh, I've caught, I've caught some of that, yeah. So, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I hear Robert Rodriguez is um, is, is uh, doing a reboot as well. Yes, uh, we've seen it recently with him rebooting his Shark Boy and Lava Girl, which I reviewed uh, We Can Be Heroes a few episodes ago. You did, and you liked it. Yep, I, th- I thought it embraced everything. One of the things that I said that it embraced really well was it had a Spy Kids kind of feel. And so it comes that Rodriguez is apparently rebooting the Spy Kids franchise as well. <laughs> I never quite got the Spy Kids. I think I only saw one of them, and that was uh, maybe Spy Kids 3D. Oh. But I didn't, oh, so you... I didn't have much love for what I saw. <laughs> if you only saw 3D, I'm not surprised you didn't have much love for it. It was a bit of a mess. It was all about the gimmick, and it didn't work. The first one was a very good spy spoof. And it played on the conventions of the spy genre. The second one impressed me just as much because it also paid homage to um, Ray Harryhausen's style of stop motion effects. Okay. Because there's there's a fight scene against skeleton creatures that is so, even though it's been done digitally and it's been done computerized, they've given it that jerkiness of stop motion to emulate what Rodriguez was clearly inspired by. And I loved it. The third one was just jumping on board the 3D bandwagon and it just played to that. And when you watched it in 3D, it was like, oh, okay, cool 3D, but no. Mm. And don't bother with the fourth. Okay. But I'd be interested to see what he does with a reboot of it. And I'd be interested to see whether he's going to do it as a complete remake or whether he's going to do like he did with Shark Boy and Lava Girl and have the original youngsters come back as adults whilst new kids are getting recruited as the new Spy Kids. Right. I can picture him doing that because he seems to be very keen with everything that he brings yeah. back for keeping some links to the original. I mean, he did it originally with his El Mariachi, Desperado, and uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Okay, I got a bit of news. Carla Delvine, Eva Longoria, and more 
are all set to star in an anthology film called Women's Stories, and the push is to include more female voices both in front and behind the camera in filmmaking. So you've got the stars that I mentioned, including Marcia Gay Harden and Catherine Hardwick, and they're all involved. What I know at this stage is Women's Stories will be comprised of seven segments directed by female directors from different parts of the world, and it's going to be shot in Italy, India, and the US, and they'll range in genre from drama to comedy to docudrama to animation. One series of films to look out for. Indeed. On the subject of people behind the camera, Christopher Nolan looks set to be parting ways with Warner Brothers. Yes, I heard this. It's something that erupted on Twitter uh, just the other day. Um, Add that to my New Year's resolutions. Spend less time on Twitter. (laughs) You kind of could have seen this coming, given the actions of the past month and a half and his his dislike of Warner's as shifting everything to streaming at the same time without talking to the creators, his complete outburst about that. Well, now all the stories are saying that after two decades of working together, and this is two decades where Nolan was given creative freedom to realize Absolutely. some films that other studios would not have given him that money for. So Warner's had a lot of confidence and faith in him, and he's been given a lot of creativity but he's willing to sacrifice the chances of having that kind of creativity going forwards to step away from them because he doesn't like the environments that Warners and HBO Max have created for filmmakers. Well, you know what? He's he's Christopher Nolan. I think he's at the stage in his career where he can knock on any door and say, you know, invite me in. What can you offer me? Uh, Creative freedom being absolutely top of his list. And, you know, there'd be fools to turn him down, to be perfectly, perfectly honest. Yeah. On the related subject of HBO Max, there's rumours and speculation. And I will specify that it's rumours and speculation because HBO have said that there's no such show in development at this point in time. But it's the app at this point in time that we need to focus on. A Harry Potter spin-off TV series is currently being mooted over at HBO Max, according to reports from most of the verifiable press right i did see that uh, and wondering what they were going to do whether it's uh, you know it's too too early now for a um for a tv reboot i know they're going to do that with percy jackson because apparently the author wasn't pleased with the with the movies yeah uh, i suspect the the uh, harry potter tv series I mean apparently it's according to reports it's in the early exploratory stage of idea forming which means that they're basically sat like us going what could we do with this franchise well you could possibly do this so i suspect that it's going to be similar to what they're doing with the lord of the rings series yeah it's all going to go past jk rowling before it's not a, not a franchise they can run with without her, her her input at any point they'll they'll jump back into the past and tell some of the history or they'll go into future stories Mark this one down as probably going to happen, but it's not in the short term, and we probably won't hear anything for definite within the coming months. The Borderlands movie. Yeah. Now, we spoke about the Borderlands movie last year, and then everything went quiet because, well, you've seen the world. Uh, when we last spoke about it, Kate Blanchett had been signed up for the role as Lilith, who's the siren with fire-based abilities in the film, which is adapted and inspired by the game series Borderlands, which is a very popular first-person shooter game. If people haven't ever played it, it's got a good sense of humour and it's it's got crazy characters within. The film's going to get directed by Eli Roth and the latest bit of casting was announced yesterday. And that is? Right. I'll tell you what the character is first, the, the casting. Okay. So the character is Roland. 
Roland is the very stern and serious soldier who leads the Vault Hunters and later the Crimson Lance resistance on Pandora, has no sense of humour, and there's even comments in the game that he doesn't know what humour is. And he, he, he he's, the, he's the strong leader who battles against <laughs> the evil corporations. Stern, serious, six foot three. So who do you think they've cast? Well, you know, I, um, I think we're going to go, they're going to cast against type. Just from that rundown you've given me. <laughs> Kevin Hart. Right. Not <laughs> on my list of casting bingo. No. I mean, if Kevin, if Kevin Hart had been announced as being cast in Borderlands movie, I'd have straight away thought, oh, he's probably going to voice the robot unit, Claptrap, because Claptrap is a, a very annoying, jokey, whiny character robot that is actually the, it's actually the source of most of the fun. In right. the games, he's hilarious. He's a great character, and Kevin Hart would have been perfect attitude-wise. And as soon as I read down the report and saw Roland, I was like, "What? <laughs> Has the casting director ever played the game? <laughs> Let, have they even re- read the notes of the characters?" I, I'm not sold. And this, after the Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett was cast perfectly. She would be a perfect Lilith. I love the games. I know what the characters are, and she is. She looks right, and she's got the right kind of approach. This just bewilders me so i'm now pessimistic about the film i won't write it off completely because we don't we don't do that thing because let's be honest i've been surprised a few times when someone who have not liked as a comic actor has actually gone on to do something out of their comfort zone and delivered hello adam sandler i'm looking at you but i i can't see it at this point in time i need to wait to see how this goes okay hold your breath i will uh, Jeff nichols who gave us take shelter and mud take shelter was a great film yeah liked it uh, a lot well, before the Disney and Fox buyout thing, which this is coming up quite frequently recently, the, there's projects that were kind of put on hold during it all. Well, he was developing an Alien Nation TV reboot. Yeah, now you say that. Yes, I do remember that orbiting. I mean, Alien Nation, I think we should go back to that for the deep dive. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I'd be, I'd be pleased to see it again. For those who don't know, the original Alien Nation film saw James Kahn as a cop forced to work with a new partner, Mandy Pat- Patinkin who's an alien assimilated into L.A. life after the last of their race sought refuge on Earth a few decades before. The film was a very smart sci-fi buddy cop film that also tackled race issues head on. And it absolutely well worth seeing. And it spun off a TV series. Which did really well. The TV series lasted because the film did OK. It wasn't um, it was written by James Cameron and, yeah. and did pretty good. It wasn't a huge uh, box office success, but the TV series is what kept that franchise, well, not even a franchise, kept that name alive. Well, th- this new project from Nichols was getting bandied around and getting worked on. Well, he's spoken about it recently in an interview, and apparently he's now ready to give it another shot. But this time it's definitely, it's been set as a 10-part limited series for 20th Century Studios. That's good. That would work. In his words, uh, we spent three years building up an entire alien civilization, and this set up and all the characters, we were set to make it as our next big challenge, a 100 million studio film. Then Disney bought Fox and killed it, which was a little soul-crushing, to say the least. They came in and asked if I'd be interested in turning it into a series, potentially. So I've taken the script, broken it down into 10 episodes. It's under consideration right now, and who knows? So I'm excited. There's a lot of potential in this. I mean, the yeah. TV series was great. The fact that it approached race issues, but disguised it under a sci-fi mask, which is what all good sci-fi does. It takes social issues and disguises them under a sci-fi mask so that you are made aware of the things wrong in society without it being too on the nose. And it's one of those films which is ripe to, to be rebooted because it was never 
it was never a massive film. As I said, it probably did better as a series in in the public's eyes. Yeah. So there's a lot of leeway, and that's 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 one of those things where you think, yeah, you can go back and revisit because it it's it's not held up in in the highest of esteem, uh, and and it's still there's still a lot of that world to explore as well. So this this is one that hopefully we'll get greenlit and we'll make it onto the Stars Play or Stars Plus section of Disney Plus. Couple of couple of points to round off the news. So first of all, Bond. We said earlier on it's been delayed to later this year. A result of that delay means that there's going to be some tweaks and reshoots taking place before it gets released. They're not tinkering with the with the plot at this stage, are they? I thought it was a done deal. No, they're tinkering with the watches, the mobile phones, and any other technology devices because product placement and the money that they get from companies such as Nokia, etc., in order to get their products on screen is a huge revenue. Yeah. And what Nokia, etc., don't want is that when the film comes out, Bond and all the other spies are taking out two-year-old technology. <laughs> they want it to be their latest phones. They want it to be the latest watches are getting worn. They want the latest. Every gadget needs has been carefully thought through as to what that sponsor, what that investor wants to put on the screen. And so they're going to be doing some tinkering. Some of it will be digitally done. They'll digitally alter some tech. Some of it will need small reshoots in order to showcase the correct logos, the correct designs, etc. And the, the interesting thing, and we talked about this on the last episode, is is now how much Bond is costing and how much it has to reap back that investment. Yes. And clearly more uh, more tinkering and more slight reshoots, even though the, the stars probably aren't going to be involved <laughs> in that, is, is, yeah. is, is, is more cost to the film. The film has to do exceedingly well. I, I've just got a couple of quick things. There's... Uh, it's landed over the last um, 24 hours. Luke Evans is on for Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio. Of course, he's already working with Disney on uh, on playing the role of Gaston again in a Beauty and the Beast uh, series offshoot for Disney+. And photos of Kristen Stewart as uh, Lady Diana in the first look at uh, the movie Spencer. And uncannily, and because you, you, you know Kristen Stewart so well, she looks identical to, to to Princess Diana, absolutely. Um, Who would have thought what great casting? But she she from the shots I've seen, she's brought that aloofness with her to that role. Last pieces of news: Cineworld have upset their workforce in the past twenty four hours. Now this is a this is a really sad story, and uh, my heart goes out to everybody who works at, at Cineworld, and, and we've got there's people we know very well who are part of that yeah. team, and it's um you know this is big business for you, um and. Well, you tell the story, Andy, before I, uh, I I grind my teeth a lot. So the announcement that has caused a lot of upset and has, start, has sparked the online, even though they don't have a union, uh, they've got the action group, which was set up last year by team members across the country who work for Cineworld when they felt that they were getting backstabbed by the company. Well, they've gone crazy at the news that a bonus scheme for the CEOs and upper management has been voted through, which will see that if the company gets back up to a £1.80 share price within three years, it's currently at about 67 pence, it could see them take home bonuses of millions. If they hit their higher target of around £3 share price, then the CEO, Mookie Gradinger, will pocket a healthy £22 million 
as a result of part of this bonus. There you go, kids. There's capitalism in action. And you know what? It's not just the cinema industry. It's it's across the light. While lots of us have going through a really difficult time, it's one thing you can say about this pandemic. It's certainly drawn that huge widening expanse between the very wealthy and the not so wealthy. I mean, 30% of the shareholders who've like had to vote in it voted against this getting put in place using the argument of the company's in financial dire straits. We've had to make people redundant. You've got employees who don't know whether they're going to be working this year. Yeah. And you want to you want to announce that all of us lot will get bonuses. Yeah. However, the other 70% went, ho, 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 pass me more money. Ha ha, I need to fill my swim pool with coins. Ching. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's shocking. There's people struggling on the bottom line to pay their rent, pay their bills because of the situation that we're going through. Some of it, yes, obviously brought on by COVID. But let's be honest, we've mentioned it before. Cineworld got themselves into huge debt. Yep. And they're still chasing debt. It's worrying. It's really worrying because I can only see a few outcomes in order to reduce their debt and manage to get their financial record looking better in the next three years. And one of those involves closing down sites or selling them off in order to pay off some of the debt. I hope that that's not going to be the case. But at this point in time, if you work for Cineworld and you listen to the show, I, I, I really do. My heart goes out for you. My, my own personal feelings on the company are well known. But I would not wish this upon anyone. And I do think it's absolutely shocking that they're announcing such a bonus scheme at this point in time. Absolutely. And that, you know, and, and that goes around, not just to Cineworld, but to all those massive conglomerates and huge organizations. While the workforce is, is struggling, um, the CEOs are taking huge bonuses. I, yeah, as I said, that's capitalist, capitalism in action, but it's still very, very disappointing. It's a proper read the room moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's... You should not be voting this through at this point in time. And for the 30% who voted against it, kudos to you. You deserve a round of applause uh, because you clearly realised that this was not the time and not the place. Read the room, Cineworld. Don't announce things like this. Yeah. On a bit of lighter news to just finish off, links oh, to cinemas. A smaller operator in the UK, Arc Cinemas, has revealed plans to expand their chain with new venues. Now, the operator currently has six venues at present, one of them just outside Nottingham, which is close by for us. There's two in development in the UK at the moment. And the new one that they've announced, which is being reported locally for us, is in Rotherham, which is literally just down the road from us. It is. And once you get past security uh, and yes. manage to get over the border, it is. It's just down the road. Now, the Arc Cinemas have a they operate to deliver a vip style cinema at standard prices no gimmicks no flashy kind of screen effects etc just comfy chairs fully licensed venues state-of-the-art projection and sound sounds very familiar <laughs> it sounds like don't you work <laughs> for anyway <laughs> i think it's great that a smaller operator offering something different is going to do it and they're not going to be a direct competition to us at the lights because they're too far out of our catchment area so kudos to them good luck to them and uh, I look forward to it going into development and uh, popping over there and saying hi to some people. Indeed. And that's the news. So if you're enjoying the film file this week, where have you been the other weeks? If you are a big fan and you've not subscribed, then please do so. And please remember to leave a review. You can find us if you want to add any comments, get in touch. Just ask us anything. Well, not quite anything, but... 
within reason. You can find us on Twitter at Filmfile UK, Instagram, Filmfile UK, or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. So you've got no reason then to not drop us a line and, and have a chat. Just see what nice chaps we both are. Okay, coming up in this part of the program, we are looking at our deep dive. Because we've not been sat in cinemas as we would love to, we've gone back and revisited a classic film. And the classic film this week is John Landis's 1980 American musical comedy, The Blues Brothers. we got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. They want $5,000. Guess you really up shit creek. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. Don't you guys ever wear blue jeans or jumpsuits like, like Wayne Cochran or Sissy Ryder? We're on a mission from God. Good to see you, sweetheart. You contemptible pig. How much for the women? I'm gonna catch that sucker. Excuse me. You guys come in here, black suits, black hats. Sit them down there. Thank you. Oh, please don't kill us. You know I love you, baby. Let's go. So after his lease from prison, Jake uh, Blues, played by the late great John Belushi, reunites with his brother Elwood, played by Dan Aykroyd, collectively known as the Blues Brothers. Uh, the first task is to save the orphanage the brothers grew up in from closing by raising $5,000 to pay back taxes. The two are convinced to earn the money by getting their old band back together, and boy, do they ever. However, after playing several gigs and making a few enemies along the way, including the police, the uh, Chicago Nazi party, the Brothers Faith, daunting us to deliver the money on time. Andy, how did I do remembering that plot? I mean, that, that was pretty much it, wasn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, this was a, a pretty late in the day suggestion for what we were going to cover this week, because yeah. I threw out a few suggestions last week um, in our little, our little chat that we do online. Then it came to literally yesterday, I was sat down and I saw it on Netflix and I just thought, oh man, <laughs> I want to watch this. So it's like, how's your fancy covering Blues Brothers? So that's why we're covering it this week. And so I sat and watched it last night and yeah, you got the plot pretty much spot on. Uh, Blues Brothers, I mean, they were around for a few years before the film came out in 1978, I believe, that um, they first cropped up on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the first Saturday Night Live offshoots. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a, a couple about some of the others that, that appear. It was one of those films that um, everybody, who, when it came out, went to see it. Belushi was huge at the time, just before, uh, shortly before his death. His relationship with Aykroyd, they, they, these guys were comedy gold. Fantastic soundtrack, almost to the point where the soundtrack not just carried the film, but created its legacy, because there's been so many offshoots of the Blues Brothers, stage shows, uh, um, uh, tribute bands, all based around these these two guys and, and the amazing songs 
which feature some of the, the, the biggest names in blues from Ray Charles, uh, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, all, all taking part in, in this, this film. It's, it has all the excesses of, of a John Landis film, which is if you're going to go uh, go big, go over the top. When you can crash one police car, why not crash uh, at least a dozen? If I remember correctly, this film had more car crashes than any other film. They made the Guinness Book of Records for the most car crashes on film. I believe it was something like 108 cars were crashed throughout the film. It was only beaten a couple of decades later when Nick Cage's Gone in 60 Seconds uh, completely smashed up pretty much a whole car lot's worth of cars. Uh, Blues Brothers, what can I say about this film that hasn't been said a thousand times before? I was introduced to it as an early age. My initial introduction to this was while it was doing promotional materials for the UK release of it, it was like TV shows at the time, like you know, nationwide and all the like early evening entertainment shows had clips of it. And all the clips that they showed were all of dozens of cop cars chasing after the Bluesmobile through Chicago. Right. And I remember watching those clips as a kid and thinking, I want this film. <laughs> I want to see this film. But obviously, I wasn't old enough to see that film when it first got released. So I had to wait until 81 late 81 when it got a VHS release and this was a rental that I must have almost wore the tape out by the time my mum took it back to the video shop. The craziness of the film, the music, the music. You've mentioned the music already, but man, that music. Yeah, It's a soundtrack that is just well worth listening to. I mean, you've got the musical numbers from the names who are musical in, in themselves. Cab Calloway's Minnie the Mooch, Aretha Franklin's Think, Ray Charles's Shake Your Tail Feather, all absolutely marvellous things, but they never take away from the use of other tunes for the background, nor from the two lead characters, Jake and Elwood Blues, Belushi and Aykroyd, who blast out some great numbers and amusing Rawhide, for example. But more than that, the iconic Everybody Needs Somebody, which, come on, everybody knows that song. It does. Now you, you know, now you're going through it. Uh, oh. and you can hear it and you can see the scenes in your head. I mean, <laughs> this is one of those films that is really about uh, about the excess, uh, especially with comedy at that particular time. I mean, it was a, a quite a, a, an interesting production. It went way over budget, uh, and Landis took it over budget. There was the delays due to Belushi's parting in that time. Him and his girlfriend, uh, um, Carrie Fisher, were doing so much cocaine. I think they kept Columbia in, in business forever. Uh, <laughs> that was starting to affect filming. Um I know Aykroyd said that apparently they had cocaine as part of the production cost um, because it was the only way to keep things going. And, yeah. and he's, he's pretty sure that Belushi lived on it. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it when it was literally described as having mountains of cocaine on the table uh, in Belushi's trailer, and, and him and Fisher just worsened throughout the production. However, it still turned out to be a great film, an over-the-top yeah. film, um, and I didn't. I didn't realise. I didn't think it made its money back as much as it did. It was the top film of the year, wasn't it? Yeah, that and Empire Strikes Back, I think, were the the two biggies that year. They were worried that this film wouldn't be a hit when it was coming out because by the time the film was coming out, Aykroyd and Belushi had left the Saturday Night Live crew. Yeah. And so they no longer had that marketability around Saturday Night Live. And so they were worried, just like, have we missed the boat on this one? Yeah, especially if you think that... um... Belushi had been in 1941, the Steven Spielberg film, which I have a lot of love for, but is, is completely over the top. And, and it felt as though he might have lost his, his, uh, his, his rise to stardom. So coming back into 
into the Blues Brothers. It, it reaffirmed them as, as as comedy comedy geniuses and comedy heroes. Over the decades, through regular revisits of this film, I've grown to love it more and more, and I can pretty much quote the whole film from start to finish. This film, it's such a quotable film. There's so many great <laughs> little, there's subtle wit, but then there's a ridiculous humour, and it balances it all perfectly. And you know, come on, everyone can quote off the top of their head. 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. I mean, just the element of uh, we've got to put the band back together. <laughs> we're on a mission from God. <laughs> and on a mission from God are now part of everyday, uh, every, everyday vocabulary. It's a great film. It's witty. You've got cameos throughout. You've got small roles for quite a lot of like comic actors of the time. I mean, John Candy is very notable in there. Um, but you've got the stunt work, and that stunt work is crazy fun. It is absolutely bonkers. And I was reading behind-the-scenes stuff over the years, and the whole high-speed chase through Chicago, they closed off that whole run of the Chicago under the railway bridge yeah. streets and rocketed along at about 110 miles an hour in order to get it authentic. Because if you look at it, it's not sped up film footage because everyone else moving around outside the car is moving at normal yeah, speed. Yeah. So it was really meticulously done. And when you look at that in that detail, you realize how risky some of that stunt work was for a comedy. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, <laughs> it sort of carried on from from what I said with 1941. It was, it was hugely over the top. While that film didn't have the had the uh, had the anarchic quality to of it uh, i think it was the charm of belushi and Aykroyd which which makes it work i mean not every gag lands it could have been it could have been funnier than what it what it is but it's just a joy of a film and and if you allow yourself to to, to get swept up in it and and to get involved with the characters and and the the, the craziness and the over the top quality of it it's just a a, a great great picture to sit and enjoy i only picked up on the running joke of broken watches when i watched it last night oh right yeah because um that you've got belushi getting his watch broken passed back to him at the start you've got the cop in the shopping mall in the upside down car looking at his watch going they broke my watch and then when all the cops go off the embankments at the freeway and all crash you can just about hear someone shout They've broke my watch. <laughs> There's, it's a little running gag that they put in there for no reason at all. But it made me laugh when I heard it on that. I'd never heard it on the embankment scene up until last night. And that's because I've now got it in a really good like Blu-ray edition. So I'm getting the best version of it. Speaking of the versions of it, first time I saw this on the big screen, must have been back in the 90s. Uh, it was when View Cinemas, well, back when it was Warner Cinemas, got it in as a classic. Right. And the print was scratched to heck. Oh, really? Some scenes had bits missing. It was juttery. It was a, a wreck. It had clearly been doing the circuit through every cinema for decades. All the student and cult film festivals. Right. And I discovered when I started working for um, UGC by talking to the projectionists, the reason why a lot of these old prints were so bad I mean, obviously, there was the scratches from the usual use of them and then getting dropped, etc. But any scenes that there was bits missing would have been because projectionists used to love all taking a single frame out as a souvenir really? of classic films. And so when a film's gone from site to site to site to site over, year, over a year, that's potentially about 365 frames that have been nicked 
in one year alone. <laughs> and that's why you ended up with the jury effect. So it was a mess of a film to watch on screen. But you know what? I didn't mind. It was just great to see it on the big screen. In more recent years, it had a, a restoration and um, remastered sound re-release on the big screen. And I got a chance to see it in perfect format on a huge screen. And absolutely fell in love with it again and again and again. This is a great film. This is a film that I... It's it's a definitely a comfort film. It's a film that I know no matter what mood I'm in, I can put it on and I will just be hooked on it and enjoy it. I mean, it's a film that has Nazis getting forced off a bridge and also plummeting from ridiculously high heights after running off a broken bridge. What's not to love? You're absolutely right. I was just playing at the scene of uh, of, of one Nazi turning to the other and saying, I'll, I'll always love you. <laughs> It just played out in my head. And, of course, this was the first film out of uh, Saturday Night Live, really, in which a sketch or a group of characters uh, had made that jump into into feature-length film. And there's been varying degrees of commercial and critical success with Saturday Night Live. Uh, there's been, of course, you know, the, the highest ones to remember always is always the Blues Brothers and, of course, the success of Wayne's World. Um, and that encouraged um, Saturday Night Live and Lorne Michaels, the guy behind it, to produce more spin-off. Now, we were having a quick discussion about this, and um, the good ones that we could think of, of course, Wayne's World, Blues Brothers, Wayne's World 2 is very good, uh, Coneheads. But there was a lot that, that never got, really made it into this country because of Saturday Night Live never had that much of a showing. It's Pat, for instance. Well, I remember that character because the BBC ran the kind of Mike Myers period for a little yeah. while. When Wayne's World was a big thing, the BBC picked up a lot of the Saturday Night Live materials to do little showcases. Yeah. So that's how we got introduced to some of them. Because that's one of the things, Saturday Night Live never really had an impact over in this country. No, it didn't. I mean, I'm always surprised that we never got it. I mean, we've got our own version at one point. We got Friday Night Live on Channel 4. Yeah. Um, but it didn't have the success that Saturday Night Live did. And, and you know, it, and it carries on to this day as a breeding ground for, for characters and uh, up-and-coming comedians. I mean, even people like Robert Downey Jr. were part of Saturday Night Live, Eddie Murphy. It, yeah. it's, just the, it's just the, you know, the way forward if you want to make it as a success. So I, I've seen out of this list uh, Coneheads, which is pretty good even though it came sort of 20 years too late. That was one of Dan Aykroyd's uh, characters. Night of the Roxbury, which starred uh, Will Farrell. Um, I remember seeing it didn't make much of an impact. Uh, Superstar, did you see that one? I didn't see Superstar, no. Don't know very much about that. And of course, and we, we, we've got to mention it and then quickly move on, Blues Brothers 2000, which is probably best forgotten and not even mentioned. It's got good music. That's all that I'll have to say about it. If you do get a chance, try and get to see MacGruber, which is based on a kind of a... Um, it's a spoof of a TV series through a Saturday Night Live sketch, um, which is... It has to be seen to be believed because it is a lot funnier than, than, it, than it should be. And apparently there's a, there's a sequel being mentioned for, for so, so long. Um, but if you do want to see another one, yeah, MacGyver was the series I was thinking of. Uh, MacGruber's based on that. Yeah, it's a sp it's a spoof of MacGyver. That's a series that is definitely open for spoofing. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, as an offshoot of that, we're going to talk a little bit about your first film that you've seen that you want to review, which has got a tenuous uh, best link to Saturday Night Live. Yes, the link is Pete Davidson from Saturday Night Live, and he's the star and also one of the writers of King of Staten Island, which landed this week, and I've been so looking forward to getting around to watching this on Sky and Now TV. 
I've heard a lot of good things about it. Um, it's a Judd Apatow film, from what I know. Yes. I have a, a, a problem with Judd, Judd Apatow films. As well, they are funny, but they always seem to outstay their welcome. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll just do a quick synopsis Yeah, first. sure. So the film is a semi-autobiographical film inspired by Davidson's own life. Davidson plays a young man called Scott who lost his father, a firefighter. Davidson's own father died on 9-11. And Scott struggles with health issues and mental health in the aftermath of growing up without a father, always trying to find his way in life whilst practicing tattoo art on his friends. When his mother, played by the ever-excellent Marissa Tomei, begins dating again. It opens some old wounds for Scott and forces him to find a focus in life. Now, like you said, as with, as with most Apatow films, and I've got a fondness for Apatow's films, but I agree entirely that his run times are far too long. And this has a run time of 136 minutes, which it could have quite easily lost 15 minutes and been a better film as a result. Right. It's always the midpoints of his films that seem to dither around a bit too much. They, they always start great and draw you in and get you interested in the characters. And then you kind of feel your mind start to wander at the midpoint before he picks it up and goes, oh, this is where I'm getting to. Get to that a bit quicker because this is exactly the same. But as I find with most Apatow films, overall, it's still engaging. And because it quickly grabbed my attention, I was willing to weather the storm of that little bit to get to the end and see how it came through. It's got comic charm. It's got a heartfelt nature and it balances it well, which is something that Apatow generally does. I've also found with Apatow films, that whilst he's directed a fair few films, it's the ones that he both wrote and directs that are the strongest. Right. So you're looking at 40-year-old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, This Is 40, and this. All the other ones, such as Trainwreck, don't work for me. I hated Trainwreck because it didn't. It feels like when Apatow is directing his own voice, it works. And because he's wrote this script alongside Peter Davidson, you've got, that director giving his voice, but also Davidson's own personal journey being presented on screen in front of you. And it makes it connect a lot more. It makes it right, feel, okay. it makes it feel right. This is a great companion piece to funny people. I mean, funny people. Was Which a, I like. I like that one a lot. Funny people was exploring Sandler, warts and all. And this explores Davidson, warts and all. And that personal connection is what really helps make you care. Because whilst you're watching a character on screen emoting about the loss of their father, you realize that he's drawing from his own loss of his father in doing it. And it impacts you a lot more. It's very well acted. It's confidently directed, as you kind of expect. Sags in the middle. But it's another example of Apatow taking a look at film from a Riley comic viewpoint that never feels overly funny and nor overly sentimental. I've got a lot of love for it. I'm looking forward to going back and rewatching it at some point as well. Okay. I'm going to talk about a film that you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, which uh, landed over the last weekend, which is Wonder Woman 1984. Now, you, you pretty much talked uh, through the plot, so there's not much point of going back through the plot. Needless to say, I absolutely loved Wonder Woman. I thought Patty Jenkins' film was absolutely fantastic. What a way to introduce the character. The No Man's Land scene alone was worth the price of admission. Gal Gadot is now forever uh, going to be seen as, as 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 Wonder Woman in the same way that Christopher Reeve will always be your frame of reference for Superman. 
Uh, absolutely loved it. So I've been really keen to see this. You got to see it first. And you mentioned one thing which I've absolutely stuck with me throughout watching the film, that it's the, you know, the colourful rendition of the 80s. Yeah. Had that kind of knowing style to Richard Donner's Superman. And I saw that instantly uh, as soon as it... Uh, uh, as soon as the film started, and and I and I loved that reference, and I loved the fact that it was colourful. It didn't matter if it was nineteen eighty four or it could have been nineteen seventy seven. I, I like the fact that it wasn't taking place in in current times, even though I don't think it did enough with it. I think it 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 didn't need to have the soundtrack as as we spoke spoke about of, of songs from the era. It just didn't feel particularly. As though it, it was, it had any relevance to being 1984, apart from the uh, the relationship with Russia. It could have been quite easily 1975. It could have been easily 1977, apart from the gags of of, of, uh, of fashion. So within the story, um, Diana finds herself. She's lonely. She's isolated, both by choice and circumstances. She develops a, a friendship with co-worker uh, Barbara Minerva, played by Kristen Wiig. Kristen Wiig. Absolutely blew me away in this. I thought she was fantastic. It was great to see her uh, move on. And, of course, she was in MacGruber, which we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, so we have that link, interestingly enough, in running <laughs> through the show. So Diana's life as both a museum curator and an undercover superhero is suddenly disrupted by the arrival of what's best described as a wishing rock. Uh, and it unknowingly grants Diana her greatest desire, which is to see Steve Trevor again played by Chris Pine, who, who interesting enough, is starting to look quite old. I couldn't realise how much he's aged <laughs> in the last last couple of years. So he's kind of returned to life, sort of. And then we get the the, the subplot of, of, of Barbara uh, making her own wish, and introduced into this is Maxwell Lord, who basically strolls into the story with a, a, a rank ego and daddy issues, and, and quite clearly for me, was uh, a portrayal of a certain president as he's a game show host who wants more power. And you've got this great opening sequences, uh, which is a flashback to uh, Diana's childhood, which I thought would play out into the into the film more, but just sort of stands alone as an opening chapter and felt like a, a reason to to go back to, to Paradise Island. And you've got a fantastic opening scene where you meet uh, Wonder Woman again, and it's, it has that Richard Donner style to it, and it's colourful, and it's a it's a great, and it's got a n- kind of knowing wink. And then for me, you introduce uh, the Maxwell Lord character played by uh, the Mandalorian himself, Pedro, uh, Pedro Pascal, and the film starts to fall apart at that stage for me because it feels uh, like a bit of a mess. It, there's a, an awful long time, even though there's character stuff happening, until the next action sequence. In fact there's not even an action sequence until about halfway through the movie. And that's an awful lot of space that I felt was wasted. This is a film that runs at two and a half hours and could easily have lost 25 minutes and we wouldn't have felt it. Pedro Pascal is is so over the top, he's back again, that it became, every time he's on screen, became annoying. And even though he's the major threat of the story, the over-the-top quality again. Maybe that was the nod, uh, the Donna nod to to Gene Hackman. It started to get on get on my nerves a, a great deal. And even though it's it's slickly directed, and, and, and Patty Jenkins knows how to direct, and that was all very very clear. It felt like a small idea drawn out for an awful long time, uh, and, and felt like a, a mess. And the magic rocks just gets didn't really start to. Um, 
have a, a, a rhyme or reason, and, and it did play off in the in the end. True, but it felt more like a um, uh, it, it felt more like a gimmick than uh, and a MacGuffin than anything that had really had utter threat. The highs of this film and the positives are it was is, is Gal Gadot. And her and Pine's chemistry, I just thought, was charming. And it was an interesting way of bringing the character back from the dead. And, and I thought every time they were on screen, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. But I didn't feel this was a Wonder Woman film. It felt like a, a Diana Prince story. And I, I started to miss Wonder Woman being on the screen. And she's, she was felt slightly kind of nobbled a little bit. I would have much more wanted to see I much more wanted to see this film be about the character the cheetah character played by christina wig i love christina wig and that should have been the threat that should have been what this this story was about because that that the the the, the wishing uh, wishing rock just kind of overwhelmed the story in a way that that just felt a little bit vacuous it was the the more interesting was the relationship between these two characters start off as friend not to say that it hasn't got any cool touches. Uh, Jenkins is a, a, a fantastic filmmaker, and even her spin on the Invisible Jet, which again didn't make sense, w- was a beautiful little scene and reminded me of the Margot Kidder, Christopher Reeve scene. But ultimately, even that charm just couldn't save it for me, and I, I had to feel by the end, I just wanted it to be over, and it had more false endings than Lord of the Rings at one point, <laughs> which was was ultimately disappointing because, as I said, uh, I loved the first film. There were just too many whys. Why was Robin Wright back in this film? It didn't have a payoff at the end of the end of the movie. What was the real real uh, threat in it? But uh, hopefully, it's not the end because it's not done as well as expected. It makes me kind of wonder why films like Wonder Woman and Mulan have found their way onto streaming. Is it because the studio didn't have as much faith in them as they thought and they didn't have to chuck that amount of publicity into them? I'm interested to see another Wonder Woman. I think Gal Gadot can, can play Wonder Woman as long as she, she wants for me because I think it, she works really, really well and she has that charm on screen. Ultimately, though, a little bit about like the 80s itself, this felt just a bit empty and vacuous. I mean, you know, that I embraced it a lot more. I yep. really loved what Pedro Pascal was doing. I mean, this is a great example of where we don't quite see eye to eye. Because uh, I thought that Kristen Wiig was severely underused and I didn't quite get her. I thought she was good, but didn't didn't quite fit. Whereas you embraced that side of it. And this is it. We get different things from the same Yeah, film. absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, like you say, uh, you know, the one thing that we do agree on is Gal Gadot. Yeah, she's uh, she's fantastic. She she's absolutely marvelous. She's grown as an actress, and and she's she's utterly with charm. I mean, she's a beautiful looking Wonder Woman. Um, and I don't mean that in any any degrading way. She she fits Wonder Woman perfectly. You know, everything about um, um and I think she has has definitely developed as an as an actress from the first time that I saw her. She was the best thing in Batman v Superman. Yeah. So. To follow on from that, I've got two more small reviews that I want to do of two other films that I've caught over this past week. The first one is on Netflix at this point in time, The White Tiger. You heard good things about this. When I first saw him, I knew then this was the master for me. I want to be a driver for your son. Hey, how much rope? Hey, don't do that. Hey, driver! I'm Pinky, nice to meet you. Balram, have you ever seen a computer? We had many of them in the village with the goats. 
The goats are pretty advanced to use computer. Okay, now you're being a jerk. I didn't like the way he had spoken about me. Since I was a boy, the desire to be a servant yes! had been hammered into my skull. Now, The White Tiger is an adaptation of the 2008 novel, and the story sees a low-caste servant in India called Balram, who has a desire to break free of the class oppression in India. He's gained servitude with the son of the corrupt landlord. He finds his new master, the son, is actually influenced somewhat by American society, and his partner is actually American herself. And he gains their trust and confidence. They tell him not to, like, call him sir. He, He wants to be, like, while he's his servant, he's his friend as well. However, all the time, Balram's intelligence and desire to be better than his lowly station keeps him looking for a way out of the system. Now, this popped up on Netflix, and I saw it pop up, I knew nothing about it. So it was a pure impulse watch. It was one of them that you just go, oh, that's new. Well, let's put it on, I've got nothing else to do. And right from the start, I was hooked. The the film starts, you have the now wealthy Balram recounting the tale of how he got where he is. But that introduction bit also reveals that there's something sinister, a tragedy that there was a sinister outcome of that set his rise into power, into motion. And then it flashes back as he starts to tell his life story. And that aspect of me was straight away, oh, wow, I want to know where, th- I want to know where this gets to. The film looks at the political nature. It looks at the class struggle. It looks at the ideologies of India, warts and all. And as a social and political satire, it doesn't pull any punches. From the struggles of his upbringing in the village to the luxury of the corrupt, the manner in which the lower caste bow and straight to their masters is uncomfortably presented, but for all the right reasons. There's times that you look at it and you feel you don't know whether you're supposed to be liking someone or not liking them because the way it's presenting it as it is. The acting is absolutely fantastic and the personal ethics of individuals is played to such a degree that you really don't know whose side you're supposed to be rooting on by the end of the film. Again, for the right reasons. And the look and feel uses the actual location. It uses Delhi. It uses the dirty villagers as characters themselves. It was an absolute surprising joy for this early start to the year and another Netflix production for me that showcases that what they do best is drama. We said last week about how they struggle with the action films. Drama is where they do it well. And I thoroughly recommend White Tiger. White Tiger is my recommendation of the week. Oh, excellent. So what's your uh, what's your next film? My next film is one that we mentioned um, last week that was coming onto the services. And so I got around to watching it, which is One Night in Miami. You brothers, you could move mountains without lifting a finger. Uh, Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. Who's the greatest? That's right. Jim Brown takes the ball. Your record is going to stand the test of time. All together, yeah. The entire city of Miami is celebrating. I'm the new heavyweight champion of the world, and I don't even have a scratch on my face. Oh, my goodness. Why am I so pretty? See, I know a bit about this one because it wasn't originally a stage play. Yes, a stage play by Kent Powers, which portrays a fictionalised meeting between uh, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown and Cassius Clay in Miami. Which sounds like, um, it almost sounds like a a 1960s Avengers movie. 
about all these <laughs> big big names coming together for for one uh, for one experience. Yeah, it, the meeting takes place on the twenty fifth of February, nineteen sixty four, straight after uh, um, Cassius Clay's surprise win over Sonny Liston, and this was the point in history that Cassius Clay was about to announce his transition over to following Islam, right, and changing his name to Muhammad Ali. So that's why Malcolm X was involved in this. And then the other characters who these are all, all actual character, actual people from history who knew each other and did socialize with each other and did know each other. And it puts the, the play, put them all in a room and had them discussing the impact of Cassius Clay changing to Muhammad Ali, what it means for the black movement and what all the other big names should be doing and can be doing in order to, you know, sort out the civil rights movement and get things on track. Whilst Malcolm X is starting to, he's starting to try to take more of a back seat because he's got a lot of opposition towards his viewpoints. This is directed by Regina King, isn't it? Who uh, you remember from Watchmen? Yes, and it's it's a solidly directed. It's beautifully shot. The use of the room in which the conversation takes place. It's so well lit, but it's moody. And it take goes out onto balconies, etc. It uses the location marvellously it has press photographers slight cause and disruptions and it has a cast that are absolutely ideal leslie odom jr kingsley benedia eli gory aldis hodge four names that you might not recognize the names but when you see them on screen you will recognize them and then within five minutes of this starting you'll no longer recognize them as actors you will recognize the characters that they're playing because they become their characters absolutely marvellous. The the mannerisms, the gestures, the speech, everything is so well honed. And none more than um, Eli Gorey, who plays Cassius Clay, who gets the whole, the cockiness, the bullishness, the the banter that he gives to the press. All of that is perfectly encapsulated. And, you know, this is the first time outing for Regina King directing. And if this is what she can do with the start of her career, I'm curious to see where she goes further from this. Well, she's been in the industry a long time. You've got to remember that Regina King was a was a child star, so she's yeah. she's grown up in the industry. So the thing that's that's not drawn me to it instantly, like as I said, the, the setup sounds fantastic. I love these. What if all these characters yeah. come together and had this conversation set up? But the the staginess of it has been the thing that has. has has not endeared me to to seeing it at this stage. Even though I, I will get around to it, is it? Did yeah. you like it? And did, does does the stage does the staginess have an effect on on it being a movie? It definitely feels like a stage play, and that's the criticism that I levy at it. It's not. You can't fl- fault anything in the film. You can't fault the acting. You can't fault the direction. You can't fault the use of music in the background. You can't fault the lighting, cinematography, but it still feels like you're sat watching a stage play. Right. And so it doesn't feel like a film. And that results in it lacking that something to make it stand out. And whilst I didn't dislike the film, I mean, I I do think that people should get around to watching it. It's not something that I'll recommend that people race to go and see. And and it feels like a one-watch event. I've seen it now. I don't ever need to see it ever again. So we've both been uh, eager with our our week to get to Friday because Friday <laughs> means another Wonder Vision episode. Um, Andy, did you catch episode three? I did. Yes, three episodes in, still none the wiser. Still think my theories are, are still viable, and still we had an episode in which 
it just played to the comedy format, but then dropped in little strange nuggets every now and then to make you realize things are things aren't right and boy that ending and oh, i kind of mentioned this I'm, I'm pretty sure we talked about it on on the show which was you know this plays out 20 odd minutes per episode if you think back to that first episode of game of thrones when you met all those characters you're still getting to know them you're still getting to know what the setup was and then you're introduced to this world and then by the end of the episode bam uh, they throw a kid out of the window and, and the brother and sister are having a relationship that's what episode three needed to have to the, well, the, you know, the, the mystery was there. It was, it was coming along nicely. You you were playing with this idea of the, every episode being a different sitcom from a different time. Uh, Dick Van Dyke show, uh, I love Lucy bewitched, um, uh, the Brady bunch with this one, but it was that ending, which suddenly went, okay, this is what this series is about. Even though you've been asking all these questions, it needed by the end of episode three to have that bam, and it certainly delivered. It's like this whole village community bubble that has been created. The question is, is this all because of Wanda, or is there an outside influence which has caused this? How many of the people within this bubble are part of the illusion? How many are real people? Who's in control of it? Yeah. And these are questions that are getting thrown out all along. And whilst there's hints that Wanda is kind of the controlling aspect, because in this episode with her giving birth, it's when she's struggling with the birthing pains that some of the anomalies start to happen. So it suggests that her focus is causing it. But I think that's a bit of misdirection. There's also and, the fantastic. Uh, I, I was also a twin line, which, um, yes. which raised the stakes on it. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how this plays out each week as it slowly builds things up. That final scene this week was the point at which they've stepped back and gone, and here's the bigger picture. Yeah. And this is what a lot of people said with the first two episodes, that it was lacking. All the detail was embedded within this illusionary world, but this has just gone, Wumph, here you go, this is what's happening. And this is for me why it's, it's perfect as a, that it drops weekly. Because you, yeah. you can go back and okay, um, people have got spoiled by by the nature of, of being able to 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 watch everything at once. But the fact that we're sitting you know, here talking about it every week and 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 discussing it and and throwing in theories, you wouldn't be able to do that if it if it all landed all at once. It's it's like I've said, it's water cooler entertainment. Yeah, it's the old you watch it and then you sit and you talk with people who've watched it as well and discuss theories before the next episode. If you binged it all in one go, you wouldn't have this. You talk about it for five minutes afterwards and then you're done. Yeah. So here we're getting weeks and weeks of speculation and it's keeping your mind going. I'm loving it. Absolutely. Um, other things coming up on streaming or that we're watching over this coming week. So on Sky Movies and Now TV this weekend, there's The Swerve. There's Twist, which I've got my eye on Twist. This is a Sky Original, which is updating Oliver Twist for the modern age. Okay. And there's a political comedy with Steve Carell and Rose Byrne called Irresistible that's landing on the service. Over on Netflix, their new film this week sees Kerry Mulligan and Ray Fiennes excavate burial mines in an estate and uncover a historical discovery that could change things in The Dig. Oh, I thought that was Time Team the movie. It sounds like it. Um, <laughs> I don't know which one's playing Tony Robinson. <laughs> Probably Carrie Mulligan, because Ray Fiennes looks nothing like him. And uh, Snowpiercer season two started this week, so that's a weekly thing oh, for me yeah. to also get my teeth into. And I'm currently enjoying and loving The Stand on 
um, stars play. Me too. Me too. I'm sure there'll be other things because last week I didn't spot that White Tiger was going to be landing and then it just dropped. So over the next week, I'm going to be watching so many films and we will no doubt talk about them next week. Fantastic. Um, Okay, that's about it for this week. And hopefully you'll join us again next week. But before we go, we do this in every show. We talk about things that we like, loved, uh, listened to, read, enjoyed. Uh, We call it a neat thing. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? So my neat thing this week, I'm going back to Humble Bundle, who are a regular neat thing for me. They are. Uh, with the latest bundle that they've dropped called the Design Expression Powerhouse Bundle. That, that sounds overwhelming. <laughs> this is art and video editing software for a bargain price with proceeds raising money for the charity Room to Read, which helps get people who have no access to books and reading materials worldwide access to this to help education. The low price buy-in for this, and I straight away had to pick it up just for this, is Pinnacle Studio 24 Ultimate Video Editing Software. Now, this is around £80 worth of software for 73 pence. Good grief. I'm currently getting to grips with it with intentions to use it for the video channel going forwards because up until now, I've been using a free video package. Um, which has some good features, but it's still very basic. I've been playing around with Pinnacle Studio, and, oh, there is so much that I can do, and I'm looking forward to really getting my teeth into it. If you've got any plans for doing your own video channel, take advantage of this for 73 pence. Well worth it. The upper tiers add in things like Multicam Capture Excel. So if you want, if you do a podcast where you're doing a video cast and you have multiple cameras, this will be ideal software. Corel Painter, oh, a truckload of brush packs, Hundreds of quids worth of licensed professional material for top tier package of just over 20 quid. That's fantastic. It's an absolute bargain. If you like doing digital drawing, Coral Painter, I've got the soft Coral Painter already. That's why I didn't go for the top package. Is a fantastic piece of software and it's got so much versatility. You can decide exactly how much you want to donate. You can decide how much of it goes to charity, how much to the developers of the software and how much to Humble Bundle themselves. Humblebundle.com. Go over there, Design Expression Powerhouse Bundle. If you're artistic in any way, shape, or form, perfect package. Okay, mine is on Apple TV, which I've just had a, an email while recording this saying that I extended my uh, my free membership up to July. Uh, and this is a series called Servant, uh, written by uh, Tony Bascallop, who's an English an English uh, screenwriter, and it's executive produced uh, by M. Night Shyamalan. So the first series followed Dorothy and Sean Turner, Philadelphia yuppie couple who hire a girl named Leanne to be their nanny for their baby son, Jericho. But it turned out that, that baby Jericho was, in fact, deceased. The first series kept you guessing. Um, it was it was creepy. They were only half an hour long, so they were um, they were just the right amount to before you started getting incredibly uh, freaked out by it. Uh, it it works on the way that you would expect from uh, something connected to M Night Shyamalan. It's also uh, a production with Apple and Bloomhouse Studios. It's just really darn creepy. You never quite know where it's going. It's 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 really well acted. I'm I'm looking especially at um, who I, who I remember seeing years back and thinking this guy has got a career. That was is Tony Kebbell. Also stars Lauren Ambrose, which you remember from Six Feet Under, and Rupert Grint from, of course, Harry Potter. It, it's an amazing series. If you've got access to Apple TV, give it a go. It will get under your skin and will make you ask lots and lots of questions. 
Um, and there's just something really creepy about Jericho, a reborn doll. That if you if you um, if you can stand that, then you can stand to see the rest of the season. Excellent. Um, that's my neat thing for this week, and that's Andy's neat thing for this week, and that's it from for us. Uh, we'll see you hopefully same podcast channel, same podcast time. But before we go, Andy, I hate Illinois Nazis. Mm-hmm.